0: Welcome everybody here in person at the Harvard campus and everybody online. I just want to say from me to you, happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. If your dad raised your hand? All right, you're doing great. Thank you so much for all you do, all the love and leadership and service that you provide your family. Let's give our dads a hand of appreciation. Good job, guys. All right, I want to invite you all, if you would, please to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2 is where we'll be, and you can take out those message notes. If you're brand new to Redeemers, welcome. We are really happy that you're here today. We are studying this wonderful New Testament book called the Book of Acts written by a doctor, Dr. Luke. Uh, and he he records the beginnings of the Christian movement, the Christian church. Roughly the first 30 years of the history of the church, we could say Acts is the church's origin story. We're looking at an origin story roughly from AD 33 to AD 63-ish is the span the book covers. In chapter one, we studied, um, Jesus is, hasn't ascended yet at the beginning of chapter one, and he's giving, he gives his, uh, his followers some instructions. Uh, don't do anything else, the Lord says. Just wait here in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit is given to you. Jesus taught that the spirit would empower believers, would indwell, uh, believers would direct Christians and guide Christians into truth. And so he gives us a big mission and he's like, but don't do it on your own. You got to chill out and wait. Then he ascends into heaven. And then there's this 10 day period between the ascension of Jesus and the descending of the Holy Spirit. And so the disciples are just hanging out in Jerusalem, and they're waiting these 10 days. They don't know it's 10 days. They just It's ambiguous. <laughs> the Lord's timing is always ambiguous. Can I get an amen? Uh, but we know it's 10 days from uh, this side of history. So about, after about 10 days, they're in Jerusalem, right? And the city starts to fill in with people because it's time for the Pentecost festival for Israel. This is an annual festival, and it's amazing. we we'll are talk about it. Let's read now the text starting in verse 1. chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. They as the, the disciples, the Christians. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, what's the sound? The sound like a wind. Remember we said the Holy Spirit, the word for spirit in the Greek is pneuma, and that means what? Wind or breath or moving air. So when the Spirit descends, it seems pretty cool, consistent, right? That it sounds like a wind. So that's what we're seeing now. When the wind comes on to the disciples in the upper room, there were a bunch of people in town, right, for Pentecost, and they heard it happening. And they're like, "What's up? What's that? What's that noise? What's that noise? Seems to come from this house. What's going on up in that house?" And so they all, a bunch of people go to the house, and they're kind of looking at this room or whatever it is, a building, and then here's what it says. And they were bewildered because each person was hearing the disciples speak in his own language, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language, Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. Cretans and uh, Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they drunk. Okay. (laughs) Now, we said, remember, Jesus, wait, 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 wait. Now, the waiting is over. Because this is precisely when we see the promise of the Holy Spirit being fulfilled uh, for the believers who were hanging out in the upper room. Now, the first thing about this incident that the, uh, that Dr. Luke tells us is that it happens in Pentecost, which I mentioned a minute ago. So Pentecost was one of the major highlights of the year in the Jewish calendar. It was a huge festival of celebration, and they came to worship. And there was basically two parts to this that has uh, pertinence for what we're reading here. Uh, so let's give a little bit. Pentecost, um, fill-ins now on your notes, happens 50 days after Passover. Passover, Passover weekend. Uh, this is in, in the law. This is in Torah. In Leviticus 23, God says to Israel, you shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. That's Passover Uh, you shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. So this is the timing of the Pentecost festival, a national gathering commanded by the Lord. And there was a couple of things that happened there. The first thing is they were celebrating the first fruits of the harvest. This was a harvest festival, but on the front end of the harvest. Uh, This is also in the Bible. Uh, The Lord gives commands in Exodus when they're at Pentecost, he says, you shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. And so you could say that Pentecost was the launch of the harvest celebration. First fruits is an important thing for an agrarian culture. Uh, this is when you, you your crops start coming in and you get a taste of like how it's going to go. And if the harvest is looking good at the start, you're like, Oh my goodness, this is going to be a good year. And, and it's an exciting time of year. It's a, it's a small slice of the harvest at the very beginning. Uh, and so Israel was, was commanded to celebrate at the beginning. Now, uh, this is happening in late May for Israel. So Passover is usually in April. Um, no, a little March rather, and then 50 days after. So it's late May. We just had the Passover weekend, uh, this year, right? And then if you do this, it's May 18th, I think was, was Passover. I'm sorry, was, <laughs> what am I talking about? I'm confusing you, I'm confused, was, uh, was Pentecost, rather. Okay, so that's their harvest. That's where their harvest season is. Now, for us, if we had this in Oregon, we'd be having it right now, right? This is our, our growing season's a little bit later. Crops are starting to come on. What's happening right now? Strawberries, anybody getting strawberries? Yeah, good strawberries. Uh, cherries are starting to come online, aren't they? Uh, what else? Peaches are starting to come on? Apricots. Okay, awesome. This is a great time of year. Personally, it's not quite yet, but I look forward to sweet corn, the best sweet corn on the planet, right? Right here in Roseburg. Can I get an amen? That's in about a month. So a lot of fun for us. But for Israel then, it was also fun for them because not only were the crops starting to come in, but the farmers started getting paid, <laughs> right? They finally had something to sell. And so, so that, that kind of drought was over. Plus the weather's really nice. In Jerusalem around May. And so this is a fun celebration. You got some money in your pocket. You got your wife and your kids in town and the crops are coming in. And man, you got a lot to be thankful for and celebrate. The weather's nice. So this was the most popular in terms of travel. People packed out Jerusalem. So it's important knowing that to take a step back and look at the significance of the timing of what's happening here in Acts chapter two. Again, this is the origin story of the church. The birth of the church happens when the spirit descends. And so you could say that if Pentecost is the launch of the harvest for Israel, that Acts 2 Pentecost is the launch of the harvest of people that God is beginning through the church age. It's not an agricultural harvest. This is a harvest of souls. The Lord is launching his new harvest and bringing people in. But this is just the first fruits of it, isn't it? It's a small slice right here in Acts 2 of the thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions and billions of people who will be brought to Christ between then and now and in the future. And so this is a beautiful thing. We see some symmetry here. Don't we see beautiful symmetry happening? So from this one church in Jerusalem, this is the launch of the church. There's one Christian church on planet Earth. And it's right here in Acts chapter 2. From this one, it will spread and become hundreds of thousands and and millions of churches around the globe throughout the centuries. Little churches, big churches. Some people like little churches. Some people like big churches. Sometimes the cultures only will sustain little churches because they have to go underground. Other times there's big, huge churches like in Texas, that nation that the Lord established some time ago, all right? (laughs) Churches that... Reach and serve churches that teach and disciple and give and pray and grow and sing and build and feed and clothe churches that challenge the evils of the world and they stand up to cultures and they preach love and grace, but they challenge, they challenge ethics. They challenge the, the direction, right? It's, 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 this is what the churches do in every single culture and it spreads all around the world. And there's churches that go underground and there's churches that are, that are open. But either way, there is a harvest coming in, and it's no surprise of how great the harvest is. Jesus talked about it. He told us in Matthew chapter 9, and he's, he's walking around with disciples and he sees this field that's ready to be harvested, and he points to the field and he says, Guys, the harvest is plentiful. And he's not talking about grain, he's talking about people, and the harvest is plentiful of people. In the church, God is bringing them in and it's been going on for 2,000 years and counting. But here's the thing about this harvest. All harvests come to an end, don't they? All the farmers know this. We know this. One day the harvest season will end and we don't know for the church. We don't know when that is. And that's why, that's why we've got to get out there now. Make hay while the sun shines, yeah, right? And so our church is focused on reaching those who are far from God. Each of us are part of this harvest. And then, well, here's how it happens, right? You get harvested into the church, you're part of the fruit, and then for all of us, the Lord strengthens us, he grows us, and then he sends us back out into the field, and then we become workers in the harvest. This is the process. And so we see this at Pentecost, this Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So that was the first component of all Pentecost festivals in Israel. The second part of it was interesting. Uh, It was first fruits harvest, and then it was also simultaneously a commemoration of Sinai and the giving of the law. Pentecost every year was the anniversary of the original Pentecost when Moses received the law on top of Mount Sinai. So let's go way back now into the Torah, into the Exodus narrative. Remember, get in our time machines. Israel is, has been enslaved by the Egyptian nation for 400 years. God raises up Moses to lead his people out of slavery and into the promised land. And there's all of the, you know, the plagues and the miracles. And then there's the Red Sea crossing. And then around 50 days later, God calls Moses to the top of a mountain called Mount Sinai and God calls his people to gather at the base of this mountain and then the presence of God descends from heaven to earth on this mountain and there's fire and there's wind and the people are freaked out they see this fire and they of God it's not actual real fire it's like a different kind of fire, and the same thing with the wind. And they see this, and they're like, we ain't going up there. And they basically say, Moses, get up there. And they run away. They're like, they're shoving him up on the mountain, and they're like running the other way. They're trying to get away from the presence of God. And so, um, where am I at in my notes? Here we go. (laughs) This is in Exodus 19 and 20. And the Lord comes down, and he gives Moses the Ten Commandments. A covenant is begun. That's the original Pentecost. Now, if you compare the OG Pentecost to Acts chapter 2, you see some, again, more similarities. You see all of Israel gathered together again on a mountain, not Sinai, this time Mount Zion, And we see the Lord descending again and his presence manifests in wind and fire. And just like before, a covenant is being established, but this time it's a new covenant. And instead of giving the tablets with the Ten Commandments, the Lord in this covenant is giving the gospel. The first covenant of the law shows us and reveals to us our sin and how we break the law And the second covenant frees us from the power of this sin. The old covenant shows us our sin. The new covenant frees us from our sin. The Exodus Pentecost was there to show us our need for the upcoming Acts Pentecost. Our need for a savior. And in the salvation history of God, law always precedes gospel. It has to go in that order. First there's law, then there's gospel. First there's law, then there's gospel. We may do a whole sermon on this one day, and it's going to be mm, not boring. <laughs> and we see this in the Pentecost cycle here, right? From the Old Testament now to the New And this is God's perfect plan of salvation. This is kind of deep. Isn't this deep? Don't you think this is interesting? Luke is just teasing all of this out. He's just laying it out there for us. It's really interesting. Now, this uh, leads us then to your next two fill-ins on your notes because we see a couple of striking things that go down when the Holy Spirit descends. Now, first, when we read this, did you notice that when the Holy Spirit descends in the upper room, every person receives the Spirit? When the Spirit descends, all Christians receive the Holy Spirit. Here it is, verse 3 and 4, chapter 2. Divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on... What does it say? What does it say? Each one of them. And, and keep going. And they were what? All filled with the Holy Spirit. So this was, this was the, the fire of God... Uh, looked like fire and it rested on everybody. This is super significant because this didn't happen in the Old Testament. In the upper room in Acts, the Spirit rested on and came to every person in the room. This was men, women, there were kids here. Doesn't say, but there was 120 plus. So you have to assume there was families and kids and Little ones, you know, and it came and it. everyone received the Spirit. Now, if in the original Pentecost, it was different because the fire of God only rested on Moses. Again, everybody else ran from the presence of God. We ain't going up there. And so Moses became the one person who acted as a go-between between the people of God and God, a mediator to act as an intercessor between... The Lord and his people. They couldn't handle his presence, and so they sent Moses up there, and Moses was like, okay. And so when the people would sin, Moses would go down, and right away, right? If you read this, they, they get the tablets, like the, and then, and then Moses is up there a long time, and the people just like dog him, they diss him. All the pastors be like, yeah, that's right, that's what happens. <laughs> no, I'm just teasing. Um, And it's like, man, it was so hard. He comes down from the mountain and they're all worshiping the golden calf. And they just, man, it was like, just like that, they turn. And so they've sinned. And then what happens is Moses is like, I need to go pray for you. I need to go to the Lord on your behalf. And he does. He goes to the Lord and he pleads on their behalf. And the Lord relents. Moses was the man in the middle. But with the gospel now, we don't need a man in the middle like that. We don't need a mediator. Kim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller, says it this way, Moses, was great, but Jesus Christ was greater. Jesus was the ultimate mediator he wasn't wasn't just he was God, God, man. So and he was the perfect me- mediator, perfect, perfect man at all. When we sinned, Je- Jesus just prayed pray for us. He died for us. And so, so gospel, right? We get the pre- presence of God on this one one person, a special person. But we're all special. We all get the presence of God because Jesus act, act as the mediator between any who would have faith. And, and be, and be then, then qualified to receive by a th- through the work of the gospel. To receive the Holy Spirit. So every Christian has the spirit. Salvation is able to anyone and everyone. It's not just Moses who's special. We're all special. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're special, bro. The only qualification is faith in the name of Christ. This is a huge change. This is a huge change now happening here, precisely at this point. So, this is going on. Everybody received the Spirit. There's another, one other thing here. There's lots of things happening. I only have time for two. Uh, <laughs> one, one, I said earlier, let's point this out. Remember that list of nations and places I read um, earlier, starting in verse 8. So Luke tells us that a lot of people were gathered in Jerusalem from, from all over the Roman Empire there, the Mediterranean Rim, and he devotes a large amount of space here in his narrative to listing the, this geography. And again, these were all pilgrims who were coming to worship for Pentecost. And then when the Spirit descends, they all hear in their own native language this worship service happening. And it says, do you remember? It says, they're all like, what is going on? This, is, this shouldn't be happening. And it says, these, were, these are Galileans. And, and this means, this is interesting. This is a little bit of a dig on Galileans. Because the reason they're, Galileans were like the rednecks <laughs> of Israel. They, they were not educated. They were kind of country, you know bumpkins a little bit and yet these Galileans appeared to know all these languages and this denotes sophistication and travel and education and things and they're just no one can figure this out because you have you basically have like all these folks who just came from a country music concert you know basically given a calculus lecture and they're just like (laughs) what this does not compute And I love country music, and please don't send me your emails. (laughs) Who, Who am I to say? I'm from McMinnville, Oregon, okay? Let's just say it that way. I'm just, this is happening, right? And they're just like, why is this? This shouldn't be going on. And so the first thing that happens when the church is birthed is your next fill-in is that people from every place are hearing the the message of the gospel. The very first church service is, again, it's a first fruit. It's a slice of what's to come. The very first church service is given in what language? A bunch of languages, all of them, you know, let's air quote all. And this is Dr. Luke's way of highlighting that the gospel is for absolutely everyone. The gospel isn't rooted and based in one culture or one language, in one gender, uh, in one people group, because from the very beginning, at the birth of the church, it was cross-cultural because the gospel is not just for one people in one time, at one culture, and in one place. Rather, it's for all peoples and all cultures in all places for all times. The church then, when we study, it's spread and we wonder, how does it do so well in every single environment, in every context, in every culture, in every language, in every time period? Why does it seem to flourish? It's because God set it up that way from the very beginning, from the very start. In every time period in which the church is planted, it spreads. In every culture in which the church is planted, it spreads. It spreads, it grows, sometimes slowly, sometimes underground and under the surface, but the church always eventually breaks through. Why is that? Nothing else is like this, except for the gospel. Even in places that are closed governmentally to the spread of religion and church, places like China and the Middle East and Cuba, do you know that the underground churches in China and the Middle East and Cuba are blowing up with Christian growth? People are getting saved hand over fist. There are more Christians underground in the nation of China than there is like in North America, in America and Canada. Canada has like 4,500 Christians and America has a bunch. And when you add those together, China's bigger. (laughs) Why is that? It's right here. It's the DNA of how God set it up. It breaks through, and it broke through on its very first day. It broke through all the cultural barriers on the first day. Nobody, the Bible wasn't, the New Testament wasn't just in one language. Yes, it was written primarily in Greek, which was the common language of all of the people groups around the Mediterranean rim. That was on purpose. That was by design, by God's design. And this is the power and beauty of Pentecost and what God is doing here. It's not tied to a language and culture. And this is so, 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 so significant because you can put the gospel in... You can put the gospel in an atheist culture and it will succeed. How about that? It will flourish. It will grow. You can't say that about atheism. It's shrinking. Atheists... They don't even meet for church. What do they do? They don't do anything. They meet on the internet and complain. I mean, <laughs> okay, I'm just in trouble here. <laughs> All right. <laughs> my wife is going to be like, okay, I have some notes for you, honey, uh, on your, on your nine, nine o'clock sermon. All right. So the best thing to do in my situation right now is just move on, which is what we're going to do. So it's beautiful things. So what I want to do now is I want to spend a little bit more time with some theology that is germane to our passage, specifically theology of the Holy Spirit, which we call pneumatology. And uh, pneumatology is the word for the, the branch of theology that deals with Holy Spirit questions. And Acts chapter 2 brings up some interesting questions on the terms that the Bible uses to describe the activity of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes these terms can bring division among Christians or denominations or churches. So I want to look at least one of these questions and work on that with you. And specifically the question is, is there a difference between being baptized with the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit? These phrases. There's two phrases. They're both in the Bible. They both pop up in various passages, including in Acts one and two. But are they the same thing? Is it the same thing to get baptized with the Spirit, and and is it the same as being filled with the Spirit, or are there different experiences with the Holy Spirit? And so let's work on this because I think we can learn from this. And we're not going to fully answer this question uh, today because there's some components I'll say for another sermon in this series. And you're just like, why do you do that all the time? (laughs) I don't know. Um, The answer, though, is both no and yes. Is there a difference? No, and also yes. So let's look at both of these answers and study them. The first answer is no. There's no difference because sometimes these terms are used interchangeably in the scriptures. I'll give you an example. If you go to Acts one five, this is now Jesus. This is his words. He's he's saying to the disciples, "For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now." And he's asking them, he's telling them to wait for the Spirit in Jerusalem. So Jesus is referring to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that's what we just studied happened in Pentecost in Acts 2. It was just a few days later. But when Luke uses words to describe it, he says it this way, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus says, you'll be baptized with the Spirit, and then Luke says, yeah, you were. You were filled with the Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues. And so there's a difference then in phraseology, but functionally it's the same Activity, so the baptism of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit in this instance are the same and they're interchangeable. So we've could, we have to note that, and through context, we have to we have to we have to interpret the scriptures appropriately uh, as this, as the Lord gives us the scriptures. But then we also have to note that other times in scriptures the terms do have different meanings. There is a difference, and so yes, sometimes the terms mean different things. I'll give you an example. We have to go to the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. He says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So here we see something interesting about this phrase. Paul is telling us that what happens when a person is saved is they are baptized in the Holy Spirit. So to be saved... Is baptism of the Spirit, and it happens. Paul says to all all Christians, the word "all" is used twice in here, so this is a universal experience that is actuated at the moment of salvation, and it's a one time event. The baptism of the Holy Spirit also is not only salvation, but it says that we are we are um, we are placed into the Christian body of Christ and into Christ himself. So there's a lot happening here when a person receives Christ and is saved. Your entry point into the body of Christ is when you're baptized in the Spirit, which is also when you're saved. So key to this is in the New Testament, there is no record of anyone ever ordering someone to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. There's no command it's never, it's, 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 it's never mentioned as a command. It's always assumed that if you're a Christian, that God has gifted you with this experience. Even for carnal Christians, carnal Christians is a term in the New Testament that describes just you're being a bad Christian right now. Um, Christians are believers who are not living very well. The New Testament authors never say to that person, well, you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. They won't tell you that. But one thing Paul does do is he commands Christians to be filled with the Spirit. So this is the difference part. Look at Ephesians 5.18. It's on the screen. Paul says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit is a command. In the Greek, there's little uh, case endings on these words that give us moods, and this is the mood of command. So Paul is saying, don't turn to any substance to find your escape. Don't turn to any substance to find your joy or any addiction for that matter, because that's going to lead you in the wrong direction. Instead, and here's the command, instead, two Christians, be filled with the Spirit. So you're not going to see Paul command someone to be baptized in the Spirit because that would be equivalent to commanding someone to get saved. And you can't command someone to get saved. Salvation has to come from a work of the Spirit. I know there are some of us who have unsaved family and friends, and you would love to command them to get saved. I don't know if anybody's tried it. You don't have to raise your hand. But that's not biblical, because that's not how salvation works. But when it comes to the filling of the Spirit, just because you are saved... And you're baptized with the Spirit, i.e., doesn't mean that there isn't more of the Lord to experience because there's always more of this infinite being called the Holy Spirit to experience. So Paul says, fill up your life with the Holy Spirit. Fill your life with the Spirit. So what does that mean? What do you mean? What does that mean? All right, let me take a crack at that. Paul is using a spatial metaphor here. It's a spatial metaphor to describe yielding to the spirit and the spirit's will and allowing him to control you more and more it means be be filled with the spirit the command it means To not push him down in your life, it means to not minimize the Holy Spirit in your life. Don't ignore what he's telling you. Don't push away his direction. Don't push away his guidance. Don't push away the truth that he is bringing to your cognitive attention. In effect, don't be a Christian who lives their life pushing the spirit to the outer edges of your life and living your life spiritually like the following... (laughs) I'm not listening, I'm not listening. Have you ever known a Christian to live their life like that? Yeah, I think we all have done that. So to be filled with the spirit means to come to the terms with the fact that moment by moment, there is a possibility in a negative way to relegate the spirit to the outer edges of my life rather than to keep him in the center where I'm most conscious of him. He's in me, but I don't really feel like listening to him. So I'm pushing him to the side. And there's like most of my day, I'm not even aware that he's actually residing in in my heart, in my mind. He's out of sight. He's there, but he has no ongoing control of my life until there are moments when I become conscious of his presence and then I bring him back into the core, back into the forefront of my mind and heart and I'm reminded of who he is and then I'll start to think of him in those relational terms but most of my day is like, I forget. I don't even notice he's there. And this is what happens with so many believers, guys. is that we... We live our life where he's pushed to the edges and we forget he's there, and then it's like, oh, it's Sunday, it's time to go to church. And then we just bring him, oh, that's right, that's right, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer. I love Jesus and I I, I love the Bible and I need this. And so we, we spend a few hours in worship and we bring him to the forefront, we bring him to the center again and he's there and we're conscious and then by, you know, Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or Sunday afternoon, whenever we push him to the side. This is, I'm talking about myself as well, okay? This is all of us. This is, I'm not judging anyone. This is the, this is the, this is the experience of so many Christians on the day to day, and so what Paul is saying is like, guys, you've had to be filled with the Spirit and repent of that arrangement. Being filled with the Spirit, one of my mentors who I listened to, and then his mentor, so it's like you know a little, boop, 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 a little ladder. One of his mentors calls, called this 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 relationship dual consciousness living DCL. This is fascinating. And that is, in a good positive sense, I'm living with the awareness that I'm not the only consciousness within my mind and heart that's operating inside of me. And so I'm starting to make decisions that are listening decisions. I'm starting to discern what the Spirit wants. And as I do that, I'm inviting the Holy Spirit to move out of the subconscious parts of me and into the conscious part of me so that I am aware that he is with me moment by moment to fill me up more and more. The, the analogy is this. is like if you're married, let's, let's say you're married and you and your spouse live in a house and there's a basement in the house, The arra- the absurd arrangement would be your spouse just lives in the basement and you live in the rest of it. That's not a good marriage. I don't know. I'm not a marriage expert. So to be filled with the spirit, then, it would be to repent of this and say, I'm sorry I've been keeping you in the basement. Why don't you move into the rest of the home? Because I want your will and presence on all floors of this house. And so the, the, the command that we're to follow is to yield more and more control To the Spirit, so that He takes up more and more space, so to speak. And this is the command. And it's an ongoing command, not a one time act. So we have these terms. Remember, that's the whole point of this. We have these terms. And sometimes we get confused as to what they mean. And so we do some hard work in our Bibles and we sort it out exegetically. But then we also try to apply this. And sometimes these terms are used interchangeably and other times there's key differences. And in the difference column, in one way, the Spirit's work, I'm not responsible for that in salvation. All right, I'm not responsible for my rebirth. That's the Spirit's work. But in the other sense of being filled with the Spirit, I am responsible to partner with Him. My will is involved, my volition is involved, and I have a responsibility to yield me and to make more space for him in my life as I yield. And so these are the ways that we organize these terms and we use them and apply them. Does this help? Do you Are you still with me? This is, this is interesting. And so the question then is, am I yielding to the spirit? Am I being filled with the spirit? This is a really good question that we need to ask in light of what we're learning here. Am I becoming more and more aware of his presence? Am I becoming that he is a consciousness in me that is living and he is the Lord of the universe? And am I yielding to his direction and his presence and his power and his will in my life? Or am I superimposing my will and my power and my take on stuff? And as I yield to the spirit, I'm being filled with the spirit. And this is what the scripture teaches. Very, very good stuff that Paul is giving us and Dr. Luke. And so this is the teaching. I'm going to pray for us. And I I hope that this is stimulating you in a way that will cause your life to yield to the Holy Spirit day to day. Let's 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 uh, let's close this out. Let's pray together. So, Lord, these are really interesting phrases. And for some of us, we're brand new to this. This is like a brand new, I've never heard of this. Some of people are saying, I'm praying, Lord, that you help us process this, assimilate this, and then live this out. And so practically, Lord, we're we're needing your grace to be yielders, to be yieldy. (laughs) Help us to be yielders and to take a step back and say, your will be done. And I pray that you would give us, Lord, an awareness of your presence that you're with us every day and that we wouldn't necessarily keep pushing you to the edges and the margins into our subconscious, but we would allow you to dwell with us in relationship day by day, moment by moment. I'm praying for that, Lord. Lord, I also thank you that all of us who are believers have been baptized with the spirit. We have the spirit. You've given it to us all. You don't discriminate, Lord, based on position or power or, posi- or these uh, special things. These criteria? No, we all have the Spirit. We thank you that we're all indwelled and, in, and 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 we are empowered by the Spirit in our salvation event. That's incredible. We thank you for that, Lord. Help us to now live this out, and Lord, we thank you for the birth of the church of which we're beneficiaries of now all these years later. And God, give us direction and guidance as we continue on in our part of the harvest. And Lord, what an exciting thing! We love you, and we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that the gospel frees us from the law and that we have freedom in Christ. Lord, so many things to pray about here. I'm praying, Lord, that we would just get this and move forward in Jesus' name. We love you, Lord, and we all said amen.